This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Beautiful song service. Absolutely wonderful to see each and every person here. Before we uh, get into our study of the morning, allow me to take just a moment of time to say again to this congregation, thank you so much for allowing David and I to be here and to join in your labors. We feel honored and blessed to to be amongst you. Uh, Special thank you to the Goodlands and the Duggars for hosting us. You are a wonderful guest. I know David would want me to say the same. And to the Duggar girls, relief is here. Appreciate everything y'all have done for us. As a congregation, you've placed in us great confidence without a whole lot of reason to do so. And we honor that confidence, and hopefully uh, it's our prayer that together we'll be able to labor and bring honor to God in this community. Thank you so much for that. This morning I want to tie a little bit, but it's really more of a, a change in direction from the last couple of nights, as you can see on the board above me. I want to talk about the value of godly relationships in the church the importance of the church and developing and honoring those relationships, not just being people that we uh, go to church with and see from time to time, but truly developing a relationship that has an impact in our lives, that we open up not just our homes from time to time, but we open our lives and become truly a part of one another, a family, a body, as the Bible describes it. We're going to look at some of those things and, and how we ought to respond to those things that the Bible teaches us about that. And when we have the right response to the body, that the impact that that can have on you and me and the community around us. I want to begin by reading here in Acts chapter 2 as the the church comes from prophecy into reality. In the second chapter of Acts chapter 2, for some reason that didn't work. We'll try it all again. That looks better. Acts chapter 2, beginning here in verse 44, the Bible says, And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You know, it's a simple reading. There's not a whole lot to it until we really pause and think about what's happened here. This is just after Pentecost. We've heard the sermon by Peter preach where he convicted them of crucifying Jesus Christ, but God raised him up and people began to believe and were baptized. And these were people that weren't local from right around there. They had traveled many miles to come there. The Bible tells us there were Jews from every nation present to hear Peter preach. Can you imagine going on a journey going on a trip that you thought was going to be three days, five days, maybe two weeks, and when you get there, you hear a life-changing message. You didn't bring enough resources to stay. That wasn't your intent. You were headed back home. But now you've heard a message that compels you to keep your family right there. And this body of believers that instantly was formed was a group of individuals 
who in reality were completely and totally dependent upon one another. It wasn't like everybody had the resources to go do whatever they want. They began to sell their possessions so that they would have these resources. And they began to go around and, and use the, the funds that they received from selling their resources to meet the needs of people that just a few days ago were probably complete strangers. And the only reason they're doing it is because these people, like me, have heard this life-changing message. And I want them to stay here. I don't want them to have to go back. I want them to be a part of this body, of this group of believers. I need them here. And notice the Bible says that as they did this, they praised God and had favor with all the people. And the church kept growing as the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I know and you know what saves a person is hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached, people being convicted of their sin, hearing the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life, and the forgiveness that's offered in Jesus Christ. That's what compels people to respond to that. But before they respond to that, very often it's the life of those that claim to have accepted that that draw them in. And I see that in this picture. That they, this body, this band of believers praised God and had favor with all people. And that favor with all people allowed the message to continue to be taught. Allowed people to continue to come and hear this life-changing message. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I want us to think for just a little bit and consider we could do a great deep study this morning on what is the church. I just want to notice a couple of passages that kind of help us get a better picture of what the church really is. And there's a couple of places to look. We're going to talk about how the church is the body and the bride of Jesus. Noticing first the bride, I want us to go to the book of Revelation chapter 21 here. The Bible says in verse 9 of chapter 21, And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. He said, Come here, I want to show you something. I want to show you the bride. I want to show you the wife of the Lamb of God. I want to show you Christ's wife. He says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So he carries him away and he shows him this holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven. Now I want you to take special note here to the verse 11 here, that very part where it begins there, having, having the glory of God. He begins to describe this great city, this holy Jerusalem. And he just kind of goes on and on about it. He says it had the glory of God and her light was like a stone most precious, even as a jasper, clear as crystal. Well, what is this holy Jerusalem? Back in the book of Hebrews, we find out. When the Bible tells us in chapter 12 and verse 22 that you are come to Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, unto the heavenly Jerusalem, unto an immutable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That heavenly Jerusalem, he tells us, is the church. Now go back and think about what John saw when the angel came to him and said, I want to show you the Lamb's wife. I want to show you his wife. What did he show him? He showed him this heavenly Jerusalem, this holy city. He showed him the church. 
And then he went on in verse 11 and described that church having the glory of God. You know, when I read verse 11, that description, I can't help but think of the Holy Spirit there going on and describing the bride of Christ, the church, much like a husband begins to describe his wife that he's deeply in love with. She's beautiful. She's kind. She's compassionate. She's my world. She's my everything. That's exactly what it is. She had the glory of God and she was like a stone most precious. Guys, I want to ask you a question. How do you feel when someone comes up to you and starts running down your bride, your wife? Do you like that? Does it make you happy? Not at all. I want us to think about that for just a second. The, the Bible tells us that the bride of Christ is the church. It also tells us that the bride of Christ is his body. In Hebrews chapter 12, or that's not Hebrews chapter 12, I, I didn't change that up there. That's um, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22. Yeah, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over things to the church, which is his body. He's, this is Christ's body. Now, when you begin to think about these passages and the description, you can't help but in your mind go to places like Ephesians chapter 5 where it talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. And it tells husbands to love their wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Why did he do that? That he might sanctify and cleanse them with the washing of the water by the word. Now listen, that he might present it to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She may be holy. That's Christ's intent to present to himself this glorious church. He goes on there and tells us that no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it in verse 29 as the Lord does the church. Just like you take care of your body and nourish it and cherish it, that's how the Lord treats the church. In verse 30 of Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us that we are members of His body. Now listen, it says, of His bones and of His flesh. We are members of His body and of His bones and of His flesh. Does that sound familiar at all? If you go back to the Garden of Eden when God brought Eve to Adam, what did Adam say? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's that same picture that's being presented. That this body of Christ is His bride. And He cares deeply and passionately about it. And we can begin to make a lot of applications of that. We can spend some more time here in Ephesians chapter 5 and begin talking about the relationship between Christ and the church and husbands and wives and draw pictures out of that. I want to look at it a little bit different and make some practical application of this idea that the body and bride uh, is the church. And I want us to think about it a little bit differently. And I want to do that by going to Galatians chapter 1 and looking at a statement made by the Apostle Paul. He says in Galatians chapter 1, beginning there in verse 13, For you have heard of my conversation in time past, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. This might seem like a little bit of an odd place to go here, Dwayne. Give me a second. Maybe we'll make the connection for you. But he says, listen, I want you to understand who I used to be. We all know who this guy was, the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus. 
He reminds those at Galatia and you and I today. He said, you heard of who I am, that in my time past I persecuted the church. Well, what does he mean that he persecuted the church? Was it some corporate entity? Was it some nameless, faceless group? What does it mean that Paul persecuted the church? Well, let's go back to Acts, the ninth chapter, where we get a little bit clearer picture of that. In Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, And Saul breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord. Went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that he found any of this way, whether it be men or women. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now notice what Paul means when he says, You've heard of my conversation or my conduct in time past, that I persecuted the church. What he meant by that is he went after men and women that were disciples, that were followers of the Lord. Individuals is who he persecuted. And he summed that up by saying, I, When I persecuted individuals, both men and women, I was persecuting the church. And in that moment on this road to Damascus, he meets Jesus. The Bible tells us as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined about him a great light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Isn't that interesting? Jesus here speaking to Paul says, you've been persecuting me. Wait a second. I thought he persecuted the church and tried to waste it. Why is Jesus saying you persecuted me? I thought Saul went after men and women that were followers of Jesus. How is it that Jesus says you persecuted me? Because the reality is, is that bride, that body, is Jesus. And what I want us to understand this morning as we look at what is the church that how you and I treat individual members of the church is how we treat Jesus. Brian, if you, you're running around backbiting members of this church, I want you to hear the voice of Jesus. Brian, Brian, why are you backbiting me? Why are you avoiding me? Why are you shunning me? Why are you gossiping about me? Understand that how we treat one another isn't about just human faces and human failures. That as members of the body of Christ, when we begin to interact with one another, we're interacting with Jesus Christ Himself. And how we treat one another is how we treat Jesus. And that ought to have a radical application to my life. It ought to really change how I see every member of the body and cause me to look at them differently and respond to them differently. When I see this and I understand that every member is part of Christ and how I treat them is how I treat Christ, it ought to change my response. I want us to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read this. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in here. We're going to make a few points out of this. Uh, we're going to kind of draw four principles that we can learn about how we ought to respond. But first we need to get this in front of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning there in verse 12, the Bible says, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentiles, 
whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body, is therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it pleased him. And if they were all one body, or pardon me, if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay much, nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given the more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular. There's an awful lot that's said there, and we could probably spend an entire week's worth of sermons, if not more, combing through and making applications of these principles. I want us to just notice out of this four different principles that ought to be our response when we look at the church and we begin to see the different members that make up the body. Number one, we're all the same. You know, the truth about humanity is we like to segregate, we like to differentiate, we like to count the ways that we're different and, and begin to classify people. And that becomes kind of second nature to us to begin to put people in different groups. And that just becomes really common for us. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 there teaches very clearly and very abundantly that in Christ we are all the same. There's nothing that makes you greater or lesser than another individual. Every person is the same. In fact, when we read in Galatians chapter 3, pardon me, Galatians 3 and verse 27, we're told that as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You are all one in Christ. There's no differences. And we began to try to look at the body and differentiate different parts of it and say this part is more worthy and this part is less worthy. I want to interact here and I don't want to interact there. I want to honor this person. I want to be a part of their life. But I don't want this group to be a part of my life. What we're really saying is the blood of Jesus Christ failed to make us all one. I don't think we recognize that, and that's not what we think in our minds, but through our actions and through our behavior, what we're really declaring is God, the blood of your Son, just wasn't good enough to make us all one. And that sounds horrible to say out loud, doesn't it? But that's what we're saying with our lives. When we live that way. The scriptures teach a completely different picture. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning there in verse 12 reminds you and I that there was a time that each of us were not part of this. That we were without Christ. That we were strangers from the covenants of promise. That we were removed from that hope of Israel. But he reminds every one of us what brought us in. He says... 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we look at one another, when we look at every member, we need to see that we're the same, that every one of us have been washed by the blood of Jesus and that power in the blood makes us all the same no matter what our past was. Doesn't matter if you grew up in the most wildest places. At one point you were without Christ. Doesn't matter if you were born in the church foyer and you were raised between the pews. You were at one time without Christ. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are all the same in Christ. Isn't that a powerful story? Isn't that amazing? That helps me understand how I ought to relate to every member. Yet, that doesn't mean that we all function the same. Because that same chapter goes on to tell us that yes, we're all one body, but there's many members. So while we're all the same, we have different roles, and each role, each function, each office, if you will, is useful. We can't, and I don't understand, sometimes we get caught up in this, well, this role is more important and this role is less important. The Bible never pictures that within the body of Christ. Notice, if you will, here in Romans, the 12th chapter, he makes kind of a similar argument when he says, for, we have, for as we have many members, yet one body, and all members are not the same, yet not all members have the same office. That word office there means work or function or role, if you will. And he goes on from there and begins to describe and says that we've all been given different abilities, different talents. And he says, whatever your talent is, whether it's prophecy, whether it's teaching, whether it's giving, whether it's ruling, do it in a way that honors God. But he makes notice that there's many members, yet one body, yet all those members don't have the exact same function. All of our members have a different role. And as I look at my physical body, I recognize that. You know, honestly, the part of my body that helps get me from one part of the room to the other, my legs, my feet, my toes, they're horrible at providing nourishment for my body. I've yet to be able to get my legs to cut up my steak. I don't want my feet trying to break down the food I eat, and I've never seen my toes take that food that I've eaten and change it into energy for my body to go. It's a horrible mechanism to provide sustenance to the body. My legs are pathetic at providing sustenance to the body. That's the job of my mouth, my intestines, and all that other parts. Not a biology lesson, but you get the point. I don't want my mouth to be the thing that gets me across the room. I would hate to lay on my face and have to chew my way back to the room. That would be a horrible, horrible way to get around. My mouth is pathetic at moving me around. My legs are pathetic at providing sustenance for my body. But guess what? When they work in unity together, my legs carry me across the room to the great breakfast that was prepared for me. And my hands carry it to my mouth and the whole body begins to, to get what it needs. Every part of my body has a role and I don't need the parts of my body trying to fulfill a role that, that's not for them. 
I need my body to fulfill, the parts of my body to fulfill the role that's for them. And for each part to be honored in the work that it does. You get the picture here that Corinthians and Romans is painting. Listen, not all of us have the same role, have the same office within the body. We have different functions. Does it make one part any better than the other? It makes every part needful and everybody to do the job that was given to them so that the body can function the way God designed. I want to emphasize that point again. God designed the body. It was by purpose. It wasn't an accident. God designed it. And when we function within that body according to the design of God, that body will accomplish the purpose of God. But we have to function the way God designed us to. We all are in the body. We're all the same. We have different roles. And in that body, as we were talking there, God set the members. There in Corinthians, it makes that very direct statement that God placed the members in the body. Here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12, it tells us to give thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet or fitting or equipped to be partakers of the heavenly inheritance of the saints in light. God equipped us to be partakers in the body. He's got a place for you. He's got a role for you. And finding your role and filling that role is a huge part of your walk with Christ. Being engaged in the body is more than just showing up occasionally, a couple of times a week. I want to tell you, if my knee only works one day a week, I'm in trouble. I need it every day. I need it to function. Not for every task and not for every work, but when called upon, it needs to be there because God placed it there for a reason. My body needs it. And when my knee fails to perform that function, we've got a term that we call. A person becomes handicapped. And I'll tell you the same is true spiritually of a body of Christ. When we began to shun members, when we began to cut members out, or when members choose not to find their role and actively fill that role, we're spiritually handicapping the body of Christ. We need to have that spirit about us, that we truly see the value and the need in one another, that individually we seek out our role, how we can be a blessing to the body, but collectively we place value on one another and see that they have a spot in this body, they have a role in this body, and that we magnify and lift that up. You know, the other choice is to kind of shun people and to push them to the side. John asks a really basic question or makes a very basic statement in 1 John chapter 4 when he tells you and I, if a man say, I love God and hate his brother... He's a liar. That's a powerful statement. I just want that to sink in for a second. If a man says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I'm not the one calling you a liar today. 
If that describes you, it's not a preacher saying you're lying. These words come from the very throne of heaven. This is God saying to you, if you're sitting there claiming that you love me and you hate your brothers and sisters in Christ or you hate a brother or a sister, I want to tell you, you're a liar. That's what God says. You're a liar. That's a powerful message, isn't it? You know, when we begin to think on this passage, we go, well, you know, I don't really hate anybody, so I guess I'm okay. I want to remind you in the scriptures, hate can mean to love less. In Luke 14, it certainly means that. Hate doesn't have to always be a feeling or an emotion. Sometimes hate's how we treat people, how we respond to them. And God said, if you're sitting there claiming that you love me and you treat my body, my bride, your brothers, your sisters, in a way that shows hate, you're a liar. How can you claim to love God whom you've not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? That's the question he asked. I want us to understand, when we understand the body is Jesus Christ and how I respond to it, it ought to make me recognize that we are all one, that we have different roles, and that every role was placed there by God, and God set these members, and the point of it is we need each other. Not it's nice to have each other. Not what a great blessing it is to have each other. I'm not denying those things. It is a great blessing. It's nice to have, but it goes beyond a niceness, a luxury, down to I need you. I need you. I can't make this walk without you. If you are cut off from me, a part of me dies. I'm going to struggle without you. That's vastly different, isn't it? What a change of attitude. When I look at my brothers and sisters, every member of the body, and say, I need you. I'm dependent on you. Without you, I am not whole. Boy, doesn't that change how I respond? Doesn't that change how I look at problems? Doesn't that change how I look at serving somebody? You know, if I don't think I need you, if you're not that important to me, I would walk across the street to spit on you if you were on fire. I'd just let you burn. But if I look at you and say, I need you, I'm dependent on you, I have to have you. I crawl through the desert to catch up to you. I will do whatever it takes to be back with you. Give me a body of believers like that. Let this world see a body of believers that look at one another and say, I need you. And all the testimony of Christ will scream. The glory of God will shine. 
We have to have a group of believers that look at one another and say, I need you. We know from the book of Genesis how God described that creation of Adam and looked at him and said, it's not good that man should be alone. I know he's talking about the marriage relationship there, but I believe there's a spiritual principle that we can apply to this walk with Christ, this walk in this world, that I don't need to do it by myself. I don't need to have the Lone Ranger mentality that looks at you and goes, listen, you're just too different for me. We don't get along on politics. We don't get along on jobs. Our interests aren't the same. I don't need you. I'm going to make this walk by myself. God said, it's not good for you to be alone, Mike. You need that body. And you need every part of that body that I put together. I put the members in there. I gave them the roles. You are all one. You need that body. I want to encourage you sometime this week to grab your Bible, grab a concordance, and just stay in the New Testament and look up the phrases one another in your New Testament. It might shock you how many times you see the phrase one another in your New Testament. About all the things that show our need, our dependence upon one another. Just a few of them for you here. That we are to comfort one another. That we are to admonish one another. That we're to be forgiving of one another. To confess to one another. To pray to one another. That we're to love one another. There's a whole lot of positive one another statements. There's also some negative one another statements. If you bite and devour one another, you'll be consumed of one another. The Bible teaches that we need each other, we need to build each other up and be dependent upon one another. That we bless one another and strengthen one another and have this response because we recognize and we look at how I treat every member of the church is how I'm treating Jesus Christ. Give me a congregation that lives like that. A congregation that treats one another in that vein. Now listen, I'm, I'm a realist and I, I know you are too. We're not perfect. I've spent a lot of time with David Earl Minson through the years. And I want to tell you, he's annoying. <laughs> We've been driving down the road and he's been talking and I've just stared out the window and thought, I'm going to jump. <laughs> he's made me mad. He's got me riled. And I know if David was the one standing up here, he'd have a whole lot worse to say about me, about how I frustrated him, how I've angered him, how I've disappointed him, how I've upset him. You know why that happens? It's not because we don't love each other. It's because we're imperfect humans. We're sinners. That's going to happen in every relationship. I always laugh when I hear couples tell me, oh, we've been married X number of years and we never fight. All I hear is somebody runs away. Because <laughs> you couldn't put two humans in a close relationship without problems. You just can't do it. You can't put two sinners in that situation. So how are we going to do that with a body of believers? You keep adding people, Clint, you just keep adding problems. And that's a reality. You know what the world says you're supposed to do when that happens? Cut people off. Shun them. Knock them out of your life. Step on them and get rid of them. 
So when we as a body of believers that are going to have problems with one another, when we respond differently and say, no, I know Brian angered me. He hurt me deeply. I know that. But I need him. And I'm going to fight to build that relationship with him. Amen. When I live like that, the world looks at it and says, what's going on there? Why do you keep going back to Brian when he's being such a jerk to you? Sorry, Brian. <laughs> why do that? I'll tell you why. Because that's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus. And I need to fight. When the world sees that, it produces for the world to look at this body and see something vastly different. It shows them a place of belonging. In Hebrews chapter 10 Beginning there in verse 24, we're told to consider one another, to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much more as you see the day approaching. I don't believe this passage is limited to our worship assemblies when it talks about assembly. Would it apply? Certainly. But is it limited there? No. He says, I want you to be thinking about one another, considering one another, not to, to, to cause problems, but to provoke to love and good works. We need to be looking out for each other. How can we help each other? And when you have that place of belonging, that place where you fit in and you're accepted, I want to tell you the world craves that. The world craves a place to belong. We talked the other day about young men growing up in fatherless homes. A lot of times the misbehavior of children is nothing more than a cry for attention. They want to belong. People want to be a part of something. In Colossians chapter 3, beginning there in verse 12, he begins to tell you and I to, to put on all these things, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind. And at the very end, he says, above all these, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body. Put on love and let peace rule. Doesn't that sound nice? Brother Phil, I appreciated the prayer very much today because you mentioned all the chaos in this world. All the fear everybody has. All the concern. Why? Because they don't have a place that they belong. A place of peace. A place of love. Where they're valued. Where they're cared for. Where they're a part of it. Give me a body that looks at one another as Jesus Christ and I'll show you a place that the world says, I want that. I want to belong. Because in belonging there, I will find my value and I will be appreciated. I'm not talking about pride. Yes, pride can get us and we think we're puffed up and the world can be looking for accolades. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the simple desire for people to value you. Everybody has a need for that. To be appreciated. To be cared for. To be valued and say, we need you. 
In Philippians chapter 2, beginning there in verse 1, the Bible says, there be any consolation, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded. And I love as he goes on here, he says, be like-minded of one accord, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. One of the reasons I, I love this passage here, he goes on to talk about putting the needs of others above myself, but one of the reasons I love it is he used this word strife. It's an interesting word when you do a little bit of word study on strife. It literally means the political idea of putting oneself forward before others. It has to do with politics. It has to do with running for an office and putting yourself out there. In fact, outside of the Bible, it's often tied to, in these days, the idea of these individuals running for different offices and lifting themselves up while dragging their opponents down. We call it mudslinging today. He said, don't treat them though strife looking for honor and position, but look at every member and say, you're up here. I'm down here. I need you. I've got to have you. I'm going to lift you up as somebody that's valued to me, that has, I, I have a great appreciation that, that you're there and you're with me and you're for me. I need that. You need that. The world wants that. They get enough of the beat down and told you're worthless, you're useless, unless you look like this, unless you use this product, unless you do this and that, and you can't meet our standards. And God says, no, come to my body and I will show you a group of people that when you respond to my call, they will value you and they will appreciate you. And you'll have a sense of belonging. You'll have a place of unity. In John the 17th chapter, we read here of the prayer of Jesus Christ shortly before Gethsemane. In this prayer, he has been praying for the apostles and the work that they would do. But he begins here in verse 20 and says, Neither pray for I, thee, for I for these alone, but I pray for them which will believe on me through their word, that they may be one as you and I, Father, are one, that they may be one in us, that the world might believe. You know, when we value one another and we appreciate one another, we see one another as Jesus and function as the body, that creates a unity of mind, a unity of purpose. And Jesus said when we do that, the world will believe. That's powerful. You know, we talk a lot in the church about what can we do for evangelism? How can we get our evangelism? How can we get more visitors? How can we do evangelism? And we think evangelism sometimes as this separate task that we do. And sometimes it is. I'm not saying it's not. But often we think of it as this separate task. We've got to have a gospel meeting. We've got to have someone come in and preach the gospel. We need more gospel sermons. God bless you and all of those tasks. May you be richly blessed in those. Does this verse say that? Does this verse say that's what it took? No. He said that they be one. That you and I be one as you, Father, and Christ are. That they would be one in us that the world would believe. That unity, 
That peace, that relationship in the church becomes a message of Jesus Christ that would cause people to believe. I, I tell you, I believe this is exactly what we saw in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 where it said they're praising God and having favor with all the people. The people saw the unity, saw the peace, saw the place of belonging, saw the value and from that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's how important this is. It strengthens us. And it's a message that calls out to the world. You know, the truth is, together we're, we're so much better than we are apart. Together we're able to accomplish so much more. In Ephesians, the, the second chapter there, beginning there in verse 5 and 6, it talks there about how that we were dead in sins, that God has washed us and raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places together. Go back and read Ephesians chapter 2. The, the, multiple times it talks about together, together, together. You and I with Christ together, together. And verse 20, he begins this and tells us that we're built upon the, the apostles, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Together we become this holy dwelling place for God. Together. Together. <clears throat> That unity, when it's fractured, when it's broken, the world sees that. And they say, I want no part of that. I'll be honest with you. I'll be real with you. I've had the opportunity to go and work with congregations where you could tell that there were severe problems within. I mean... There were people that wouldn't talk to each other, wouldn't acknowledge each other when they walked in the door. They didn't even pretend like they were members of the same congregation. And if we were lucky enough to get a visitor to come to that assembly, they would tell you, I can feel the tension there. You think they came back? <clears throat> Nobody likes it. You, you like going to a workplace where it's tense all day and you feel like you're walking? No. That's not what anybody's going to do to you. But when we have peace and we have unity and we're together in this, it creates an atmosphere where people can see the love of God. It creates growth internally and externally. Ephesians chapter 4, there he talks, beginning about verse 11, how he gave these different offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He gave them for the equipping of the saints that we could grow up, not be children, not be babes tossed to and fro with every doctor, but that we might mature in Christ Jesus. And here's the reason that he wants us to do that. From the whole body, he says, fitly framed together, or fitly joined together and compacted by that which every part or the effectual working of every part in the measure causes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. It causes increase by building, strengthening, equipping. Give me the most talented people you can think of when it comes to church work. Give me the greatest teachers you can think of, the best song leaders, the best prayers, the most friendly and outgoing people, and plant within that group division. And I'll show you a body destined to die. Give me a group of people 
that love one another as Jesus and see one another as Jesus. Maybe they don't have that talent that the other group did. But they love and value the way Jesus wants us to treat one another. And that group together with its synergy will accomplish more than any of them could alone. And more than anybody can with problems and division and hate and strife. It has an impact, not just internally but externally, that's going to cause this growth. I want to conclude our thoughts this morning by laying in front of you a challenge this week. Get your church directory out and go through your church directory name by name and pray for every single person and see yourself being a servant and what you can do to actually be a servant to every single person that's in that directory. Because every single one of those people, they're Jesus. Amen. That's how we ought to live. This morning we're going to offer an invitation. We've not spoken a lot about uh, salvation in the sense of the gospel in and of itself. I'll tell you why I believe in offering an invitation. I've been asked this before. It's not to ridicule or humiliate people. It's not to to highlight someone struggling. I'll tell you why I believe in offering this song. Because I believe in the power of Jesus Christ to change lives. Even in this moment. Maybe you just want to be prayed for and to be strengthened. Maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you've got a battle raging inside you that you're fighting that you just need a little help with. You need some Somebody just pull alongside you and say, I, I've got you. Maybe that battle's getting the most of you. And you're starting to fail. And you don't want to. Maybe there's sin raging in your life this morning. I don't know. Perhaps there's one among us that's never experienced being made one in Christ Jesus. I believe this morning your life can be changed. Not by my call, not by the wonderful men and women of this congregation, but by Jesus Christ. And I know this body would love to be your servant and help you approach the throne and cross of our Savior. That your spiritual needs could be met. We want to wrap our arms around you. We want to love you. We want to strengthen you and let you know we see you as Jesus. And if you need some help this morning, our Lord and Savior stands ready to help you. If we can be your servant, we ask you to have a seat on this front row while we stand out of sync. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.